Ideas matter. Ideas matter. This is Dialogue. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. December 10th marks International Human Rights Day, which honors the historic adoption of the Universal Declaration by the United Nations General Assembly in 1948. 75 years later, as the international community commemorates the introduction of the milestone documents, it's uh, imperative for us to review how far we've come and consider what more needs to be done on the issue of improving global human rights. For this very important and necessary discussion, I'm honored to be joined by Zun Ahmad Khan, Research Fellow of the Center for China and Globalization, Dr. Wu Wen Yang from the Institute for Human Rights of China University of Political Science and Law, and Professor Joseph Gregory Mahoney from East China Normal University. That's our topic. I'm Xu Qingdu. Welcome to Dialogue. Uh, so, uh, Professor Mahoney, I will start with you here. You know, 75 years uh, is a long um, period of time. What about achievements in terms of human rights? Well, you know, the, uh, the document was signed in the aftermath of World War II. Uh, and at that time, it spoke directly to uh, the horrors associated with that war, especially, uh, especially uh, associated with uh, the, the German and Japanese practices of fascism, but uh, also gross violations of human rights that were found around the world, including uh, at that time, uh, still in many uh, developing countries, including areas that were still under colonial control by, by, the, by, uh, by some of the European powers that actually won and declared victory uh, in uh, World War II. Now, you know, the, the achievements, I think, of the, of the document uh, is that it did establish an international discourse, a global discourse on human rights. And it did so in ways that, uh, although, although we can look back on it today and say that it favored perhaps a Eurocentric or Western Universalist uh, concept of, of human being and human rights, it nevertheless established uh, th this idea that, that people should have rights um, and, and provided, um, you know, this um, basis for, de for, for developing, but also discussing over time how to actually achieve these, uh, not simply from a Western point of view, but from a global perspective, from uh, different civilizational perspectives. And, uh, and along the way, we've seen, of course, tremendous advances in both the Western world, the developed world, as well as the developing world, uh, including China, in, in terms of progress associated with human rights. Well, Dr. Wen Yang, you know, if you look at uh, the uh, concept or the idea of human rights, uh, over the past 75 years, uh, you know, uh, well, the world developed, you know, with globalization. Do you see the concept, uh, you know, gaining attraction probably with each passing year is becoming more and more prominent and more and more content being added to that? Yes, thank you for your question. I think human rights is definitely gaining more importance. And I think uh, many of the progress in the field of human rights uh, has been inspired by the UDHR and also UDHR also has inspired other international and regional uh, human rights instruments. Um, and I think the, it, it just sends a very key message that um, human rights are interdependent and should be enjoyed by everyone. And I think uh, these ideas and spirits also have promoted the human rights protection on the national level. For example, if we uh, look at the Human Rights Action Plan of China, take 2021 to 25, for example, it covers 
both civil and political right and economic, social and cultural right. And it also focuses on particular groups like ethnic minorities, women, children, the elderly. So I think definitely not only countries themselves, but also people are paying more attention to human rights protections. Uh, well, Zone, of course, uh, you know, there's uh, important principles uh, under the declaration, for example, universality, inability and uh, indivisibility. And uh, of course, the rights to, you know, in terms of uh, economic aspects, even today, if you look at the climate change, you know, uh, some, some parts of the world are much more vulnerable, despite, uh, you know, um, the fact that uh, it's not contributed by them to climate change. And also, if you look at the conflicts in Ukraine, in Gaza, then people yeah. will, ask, will be asking the question like, uh, you know, equality to protect the children, to protect women, for example. Obviously, we are still far from being, uh, say, perfect, the situation here. Absolutely, absolutely, Shendo. I think, I mean, of course, the human rights, the Universal Human Rights Declaration was a critical and key milestone. Uh, both our previous panelists have also mentioned the context and how they talk about the interconnectedness of these rights. But it is also important to understand that we are living in a world where the rights have to be somebody's duty and somebody's responsibility. When we talk about the climate crisis, we talk about millions, at least millions, being displaced from their homes that they have had for centuries because of the climate crisis. Predominantly, again, like you mentioned, I mean, these are communities, these are countries or even entire regions that have not contributed, that are not, you know, stakeholders in creating this crisis. So when we talk about basic human rights, we have to talk about the degree to which, you know, regardless of this recognition of the universal universality of human rights, there are injustices that exist. And unless we delve deeper into these issues, these critical challenges, we will not be able to address them. I think one of the critical milestones that human rights governance globally has achieved is the increased voice of developing countries. Let's remember that when the Human Rights Declaration was initially uh, you know, introduced, there, a lot of the countries that are currently members of the General Assembly were not even independent countries at that time. Today they are. Today they are also trying to mobilize through a group such as the G77, which, for instance, introduced the loss and damage fund at the COP27. And as we speak right now about the Human Rights Declaration and its anniversary, its 75th anniversary, it's important that the COP28 is ongoing. And what we see is a lack of commitment and lack of recognition of whose duty is it to provide these rights. And again, I think uh, it's also important to understand that uh, the perspective of developing countries when it comes to human rights is more about to what extent can we provide better, more dignity for our people? How can we find creative solutions and partners who can help us find creative solutions to address the issues of poverty, hunger, starvation, insecurity? And again, I mean, when we again talk about uh, conflicts, there couldn't be a grosser violation of human rights than war intervention and conflict. And these are important discussions that we need to have globally if we really want a human rights charter that is respecting the human dignity of people across continents and across uh, different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, well, different voices and the different contribution there. Let's take a look at the, you know, the challenges, uh, existing challenges and the, and, and the problem right now facing the global human rights situation. Uh, Professor Mahoney, you know, what do you see as the major probably challenge in terms of uh, pushing forward, for example, improving human rights, I mean, universally? 
Well, you know, I think one of the things that we've seen with the document from its beginning is that it's been aspirational. It's non-binding. And of course, if it had been binding, uh, what we would have found is that many countries would not have signed up for it. Uh, and, and most countries would fail to to meet uh, the requirements. But uh, one of the problems with, with being aspirational is that it, it leaves open uh, I think it's too loose in, in some respects, and it makes it, um, I think, very easy for some countries to say, well, we're at a, a specific uh, period in our development, or we have certain civilizational cultural values that uh, preclude us from being able to actualize certain standards of human rights. And, and although this is sometimes true, and I think it has to be taken uh, uh, seriously, it is probably also the case that uh, that it's exploitative. And, you know, I think that the standard here is not to look uh, specifically at the developing world or civilizations like, uh, for example, the Arab Islamic states that, that found uh, the, the declaration to be in conflict with uh, Islamic law, uh, but to look specifically at the most developed countries. Uh, for example, um, we can say that uh, China for uh, China as a developing country has made uh, major and perhaps even unparalleled achievements in advancing human rights for its own people. But then if we compare that to uh, the lingering problems of human rights that we find in some of the most developed countries like the United States, whether it's related to um, an inability to make uh, significant progress on uh, climate change, despite being one of the major uh, contemporary historical uh, causes of climate change or the inability to advance security for the majority of its people, whether it's uh, gun-related security or or security related to novel outbreaks like COVID, or problems associated with minorities, racial discrimination, police brutality, all of these sorts of things. We see that these problems continue to persist even in areas that are, are among the most developed. And uh, at the same time, we are, of course, uh, encountering many new problems. Uh, uh, my, my good friend Zoon noted, of course, climate change, you've noted this, uh, as well as other concerns uh, that uh, have arisen with um, the advance of technology and the various uh, challenges associated, uh, whether it's AI or uh, digitalization or, or exploitation or, or capitalism or, or, or uh, surveillance capitalism or what have you. This is where we, we see that, um, that perhaps we need to revisit this in a more robust way and think about how it, it should serve this new era that we're that we're that we're now struggling uh, to meet, uh, as well as the various headwinds that are that are coming our way. Well, new ch challenges or new concept uh, ideas, you know, in this new era. When uh, you know, both you and, uh, and uh, Professor Mahoney mentioned about you know the the, the Chinese achievement. Uh, in terms of uh, human rights uh, uh, protection. You know, many people would point to the poverty alleviation, for example, you know, hundreds of millions of people being lifted uh, out of poverty. So that's uh, I mean, obviously a great achievement over there. What else do you think you know, China has achieved in terms of protecting uh, the rights of its people? I think one very important aspect is to promote human rights for everyone, I mean, everywhere. Like I said, it's a very key spirit or uh, idea of UDHR. I think what China is doing is trying to make sure that no one is left behind. And for example, the, um, the China's very free environmental creation law has just uh, come into effect on September 1st this year, uh, which aims to support persons with disability and also the elderly uh, to participate uh, and be included more in public life. So this kind of uh, new laws and regulation and other measures and policies put in place, in place 
are very important to make sure that they're not only human rights protection, but also this kind of human rights protection can be enjoyed by everyone, even minorities from different groups and also women and children, people with disabilities. Mm. Uh, it's in, in, I mean, a different sense of a universality, uh, basically for everyone. Yeah. And Zoom, yes. uh, I think similarly, I think you mentioned uh, when you talked about the global south, developing countries, you mentioned uh, dignity. Uh, and, you know, uh, I think for a lot of people, individuals, you know, without development, uh, it's very difficult to talk about dignity, you know, you know, without access to water, access to education, access to medical services. I mean, for an individual, it's wrong probably, or it's just uh, wishful thinking to talk about protecting their rights. No, absolutely. I think it's 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 also important to mention here that the environment that I was growing up in, there was a certain notoriety uh, around these NGOs that would talk about th these human rights activist NGOs. Some of them that were looking at very myopic issues, but not even playing a minute role in helping the communities where they found these isolated issues to actually address the developmental challenges. The fact that, you know, people were not talking about creative ways to alleviate poverty in order to improve the quality of life of women where we are criticizing gender biases. But why not create a situation where women actually have better opportunities? So I think one of the biggest contributions, in my opinion, that China is making right now is the fact that it is following, I mean, uh, making it a priority to improve progress on the sustainable development goals. And it is also helping many developing countries through different investments, through creating platforms to understand how can they more creatively address challenges of poverty, of hunger, of starvation, and how, I mean, even safety is a very, very basic and very important human right. What is the human right? of someone who can go and cast a vote, but doesn't have a roof on their head or doesn't have food for their children. So these are some important practical conversations to have that we need to transition from this very idealistic, like Professor Mahoney mentioned, you know, this conversation about these ideals. Of course, it's important to have these ideals in mind, but for communities, for countries, for their constitutions, for their policies to actually move towards a better place today, uh, tomorrow than they are in today they need to have some practical steps and which countries, which mechanisms are helping them achieve those practical steps are the ones that are contributing to better human rights, global governance. So I think uh, definitely we need to have conversations that are more relevant to developing countries. One of the other important aspects to mention is, for, exa for example, we have the South-South Human Rights Forum uh, here in Beijing, we had these subcommittees on economic rights, on various other particular rights. And you had so many delegates from Latin America, from the African continent, from parts of Asia, where they mentioned that what we need from developed, relatively developed partners is to actually take an interest in the economic development and stability and better quality of life for people, rather than just, you know, providing aid which doesn't have a, 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 that kind of a positive impact or rather than just standing and criticizing countries from afar without understanding that they literally do not have the means or the solutions to be able to achieve uh, better human rights circumstances for their people. So that's important to understand that human rights is going to be an ongoing goal. We should measure the progress that countries are able to make. And we should also have a human rights footprint for countries based on not only their, the impact of their domestic policies, but also the impact of their policies and their initiatives globally, which countries have a positive human rights footprint and which have a negative human rights footprint. This is an important conversation for the Global South to take forward. 
Well, that's an interesting idea. And then ho hopefully there will be a map of uh, you know, human rights footprint. So we can see... And loss and damage funds on that as well. Uh, right, <laughs> loss and, and damage fund, yes. So, uh, Professor Mahoney, obviously, it seems like there are different, um, uh, let's say, priority, if, different, if not differences, between the global south and the global north. Global north tend to stress very much about the political rights, you know, rights to vote, freedom, etc. Global south tend to, you know, prioritize you know, basic rights of development, for example, or, or access to the basic needs as, a, as an individual there. So how do you look at the differences? You know, is there a way to bring them together or to have a good dialogue, which would probably help both sides? Well, you know, again, I think Zun's comment about a footprint is interesting because it would be obviously very, very interesting to see, but hard to calculate. I think one of the problems that we that we have with with this declaration in the first instance, as I said earlier, is that it was conceived by a select few countries, predominantly Western countries, although China was was played a role in the early in the early stages, but it excluded a large number. I think the the concern is that. Um, there's been this this double standard, a double double standard. On the one hand, a lot of the most developed countries were able to achieve their development precisely by dispossessing uh, other countries, precisely by employing the methods of imperialism and colonialism and even slavery and genocide and dispossession and and you know uh, uh, creating ruin and destruction in uh, huge swaths of the globe uh, in Latin America, Africa and Asia. And uh, and then, you know, once they achieve their development and, and uh, to go back to, I'm, I'm going to get in trouble here, but to go back to the Olinist concept of the center versus the periphery, that the, that the mm -hmm. center was able to exploit the periphery in order to create these advantages and privileges, which, by the way, is, is something that I, I think is really at, at the heart of what Zun is talking about in terms of, uh, you know, certain developed countries today trying to enact policies that restrict uh, development in the global south because it will contribute to global warming, global warming, a problem that was driven primarily by the, by the development of the global north. So, you know, these sorts of problems where you have these countries that developed by uh, violating the human rights of, of the global south, and now that they have achieved this plateau, uh, they, they wag a finger at the countries that they dispossessed. And, and accuse them for not living up to the standards that they themselves actually don't even live up to that very that, that, that very good, that they don't live up to the standards themselves very well, uh, whether historic or contemporary. Uh, so I think this is the things that we have to, to come back to perpetually in, in, this, um, in this discussion. To be honest with you, I think China is, um, we, we all know that, that every country uh, struggles to actualize human rights and, and China is no exception. But I do think that China is trying to bridge the gap between the developed uh, world and the developing world. China is itself bridging that gap internally, but also trying to extend this. And we, and we see this not only in terms of China advancing things like the Global Development Initiative, the Global Security Initiative, uh, the Global Civilization Initiative, but also really trying to promote multipolarity, multi excuse me, multipolarity, as well as uh, the strengths of uh, international organizations like the United Nations uh, and avoiding uh, small block building and other uh, efforts that, that are moving towards uh, increasing uh, polarization and, and even uh, perhaps a new Cold War paradigm uh, where uh, developed uh, countries will uh, try to consolidate perhaps historical gains at the expense of, of uh, developing ones. 
Uh, well, we, um, you know, obviously there are, yes, there are different understanding, differences, uh, different practices even, uh, you know, between the global south, global north. Um, but also there's an issue probably of uh, uh, some people, sometimes people call it the politicization of human rights, you know, or weaponization of human rights. Uh, it's being used uh, as a political excuse uh, to hate the, you know, the rival countries or other countries you don't like. And we see these, uh, you know, accusations from Washington, for example, against uh, China, despite its strong record of protecting human rights or the improvement of human rights. Um, so how do you look at this issue? And like, in what way can we focus on the real issues of improving human rights, probably not only in China, but also in the United States? Yes, well, I think some um, confrontation, I sincerely hope that some confrontation actually comes from misunderstanding, but actually uh, some, as you said, do uh, are accusations that are cle clearly out of uh, political purpose. And I think this is not only will do no good for promoting and protection of human rights, but also it will lead to uh, just more confrontation and also erode the credibility of um, some international platforms or mechanism which are meant to discuss and actually solve human rights issues and promote constructive dialogue. Um, and I think different country, I mean, it's, it's only natural that different countries have different um, cultural, historical, and religious background and will choose different human rights paths. And I think what is important is not to confront it, but to find common ground or to just to respect each other's differences. And just like President Xi um, has said, the countries need to uphold the principle of equality, mutual learning, dialogue and inclusive among civilization and let cultural exchanges transcended um, estrangement, mutual learning and transcendent clashes. Um, so I think what is more important is to actually uh, respect each other's uh, human rights path and because they have different uh, development age uh, stage, they all choose different paths and different way to protect human rights and just to show more respect for that. Uh, well, uh, say so Zoom, uh, if you look at, uh, I mean, the future, or you talked about the Global South, now they have uh, their voice being heard uh, increasingly, uh, not only in the developing world, but also I would say globally. So uh, if the trend continues, uh, do you expect uh, probably more meaningful uh, dialogue between the two sides and somehow we can, uh, let's say, make progress together? I mean, uh, human rights is specific uh, about individuals, about their life, uh, but the protection of their, you know, access to many, many, I would say, uh, public goods over there. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I think um, I'll go back to, again, Professor Mahoney's center-periphery um, discussion, where it is true that, you know, countries that were part of the Global South, that were previously colonized and that have faced uh, centuries of discrimination and uh, uh, loss of their own resources uh, are now still facing those basic challenges, uh, basic inequality, basic lack of representation, uh, basic lack of also ability, technical skills to be able to negotiate more effectively and utilize these global international mechanisms, including the United Nations mechanisms, right? So I think gradually we are coming closer each year, we are closer to better, more effective representation of the global south. We are also in a in a in an age of uh, digital media, of of access to perspectives from different parts of the world, where somebody sitting in uh, in a country in Africa can really have access to the conversations happening in other developing countries in the world, and that helps us understand that you know this periphery 
is not as divided or as isolated or as much as much doesn't need to be as marginalized as it is it is in the end a majority so i think um, platforms that are being also again initiated by china we also have you know bricks and enlargement for example mm -hmm. we have the seo we have multiple initiatives and mechanisms that are helping parts of the world that were at the mercy of the global north now coming together and thinking of creative ways forward so yes every year we are a step forward we still have a long way to go i think we still have to understand that some basic inequality some basic uh, misrepresentations of uh, people or categories of people or labeling of people is happening as we speak which is dehumanizing entire populations there should be less of that there should be uh, more of a recognition by developing regions that they need to unite and step forward and actually have more practical discussions on what are the goals they would like to achieve how can they achieve the sdgs yes. more effectively what are the practical means forward so more skills training more uh, platforms and uh, much more uh, much more uh, discussion on these topics is still required Mm -hmm. uh, Professor Mahoney, you know, uh, let's take a look uh, briefly at the differences probably between the West and the East. Uh, BBC once commented that you know, the vast majority of the Chinese population regard themselves as belonging to the same race, a stark contrast to the multiracial composition of other populous countries. Uh, so is this a major reason for the different understandings uh, between China and the West on the uh, you know, concept of human rights here? Well, first, I don't think the BBC has a good understanding of race and ethnicity in the UK itself, uh, let alone countries like China, India, and the US, uh, and so on. Uh, it, in China, it, it's true that somewhere around 94% of the, of the population regards itself as belonging to the Han ethnicity, but this does not mean that they regard uh, being Han is the same, in a narrow sense of the word, as being the same as being Chinese. There are, after all, uh, 55 other recognized and protected ethnicities in China. Uh, furthermore, among uh, Chinese people, um, uh, uh, we do find uh, people who are ethnocentric and even xenophobic, but we also find others who are internationalist and open-minded, uh, as, as, as much as anyone is uh, so, uh, espousing similar views elsewhere in the world. In fact, uh, I think a bigger historical problem is that many in China are just now starting to recover a sense of racial and national pride and confidence after decades of feeling inferior because they were treated as inferiors by imperial powers uh, like the UK, and, and uh, Zun spoke to this uh, briefly. Uh, second, I don't think there are stark cultural and ideological differences. Uh, uh, to be sure, we can talk about deep civilizational differences stretching back thousands of years and how these continue to influence, uh, for better or worse, uh, contemporary society. But in fact, what we have in common today far outstrips our differences. Uh, uh, where we are fundamentally different has more to do with who gets to benefit from a history of inequality and who gets to uh, perpetuate hegemony. Uh, and so on. Now, I think finally, uh, there are good lessons to learn from China and the rest of Asia, from West, from, from, as, as well as from the West, uh, Africa, and Latin America. Now, some of these lessons are found in traditional values and understanding and are expressed in thoroughly, uh, uh, as well as uh, in thoroughly modern achievements. Uh, the main problem we face is moving past the competitive uh, zero-sum paradigm that scapegoats uh, 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 cultural differences, uh, to be honest with ourselves, and to dialogue on the basis of uh, mutual recognition and respect. And if we could do that, I think all of us would be able to take a, a big step forward. Well, with that, we come to the end of today's show. Many thanks to our guests. I'm Xu Qinduo. See you next time.